the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm your host, Megan Leipsch. As a kid, I loved the nativity story. To my imagination, it had all the elements of a great narrative. Drama, adventure, courage, and a motley crew of characters, from far-traveled kings to the working class of Judea, shepherds. And at its heart is a family forged in love and a faith in something bigger. Of course, as a kid, I only had a faint inkling of what was asked of Mary and Joseph, of what they sacrificed to protect their son. Now, as an adult, I imagine their worry and their exhaustion, but their conviction too. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mary and Joseph flee Bethlehem with the infant Jesus shortly after his birth. Paranoid by reports of a newborn king of the Jews, King Herod has ordered the slaughter of all boys two years and under in Bethlehem. A dream warns Joseph to escape. The Holy Family seeks refuge in Egypt, out of Herod's reach, a biblical asylum claim. In Egypt, these young and scared parents hope to shield Jesus from harm. Today, in the U.S., we need not look further than our own southern border to find modern-day Holy Families. In 2021, U.S. Border Patrol encountered over 450,000 families attempting to cross into the U.S. Many of them are escaping political persecution and violence in countries across Central and Southern America. Most of them have been turned away, expelled back to Mexico. Two Jesuits, Fathers Brian Strasberger and Louis Hotop, witnessed this reality firsthand. Since the summer of 2021, they have worked with migrants in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas and Northern Mexico. There, Brian and Louis helped the groundswell of collective aid at the border, administering donations of toiletries and food, supporting local food kitchens, supplying first aid stations, and offering spiritual companionship to migrants. But they also want to share what's really happening on the border, as told by the people who live and work there. Through their aptly named Jesuit Border podcast, they draw a vivid picture of life on the border through stories and interviews with local leaders. So this week, as we celebrate the Holy Family and the Christmas season, we'd like to share with you a special crossover episode of the Jesuit Border podcast. On this episode, Brian and Louie are joined by Sister Norma Pimentel, a powerhouse of advocacy and service in the Rio Grande Valley since the 80s. You want to stay tuned for her interview. If you enjoy this episode, you can subscribe to the Jesuit Border podcast via the link in the show notes, or find them wherever you get your podcasts. Without further ado, here's Brian and Louie. Hello and welcome to the Jesuit Border podcast. This podcast explores the Catholic response along the U.S.-Mexico border, my name is Louis Hotop. And I'm Brian Strasberger. We're a pair of Jesuit priests missioned to the Diocese of Brownsville, Texas. We're not from the border, but we live here now. This podcast will highlight some of the work that the Catholic Church and others are doing to address the needs on the border, as well as explore immigration topics from the perspective of Catholic social teaching. Let's begin. Vamos! Our topic for this week is the preferential option for the poor. We will be interviewing Sister Norma Pimentel, who is Director of Catholic Charities in the Rio Grande Valley, 
which, among other things, runs the Humanitarian Respite Center in McAllen, Texas, which we visit twice a week. Sister Norma is part of the Missionaries of Jesus congregation, and she's a real mover and shaker in the migrant response. In fact, she was featured on Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in 2020. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's talk a little bit about how we've seen the preferential option for the poor and vulnerable put to work in the camp in Reynosa that we've been visiting. You know, as we've talked about before on this podcast, we have been bringing donations into the camp in Reynosa and distributing those donations through the four uh, kitchens, the four cocinas that are in the camp. And we've developed relationships with the people who manage the cocinas, and, and we think that we've found a pretty good system for, for really finding those people that, that might need the donations the most, because we can't, obviously there's, there's about 2,000 people, it's estimated, in the camp, and we can't we can't give that many donations from our our little Camry. That's right. <laughs> to every, if, we, if we had a huge truck, hint hint, donors, <laughs> we would love to, but we've got our Camry, so we can't we can't get everybody. Yeah, I mean, size of car aside, I mean, it's just it's hard to supply things for two to three thousand people living in the camp, and so when we bring over supplies, uh, we always tell ask the people at the cocinas, can we prioritize those who are most in need? There's, there are needs among everyone who is in that camp, for sure, but not everyone needs a toothbrush every single week, right? Mm-hmm. Not everyone needs uh, a winter cap or a sweater or so, among the, some of the things that we bring or a tarp or some of these products. So what they have told back to us is that the best people to prioritize are new arrivals because literally every single day there are new migrants who have most likely tried to cross into the United States, been apprehended by Border Patrol, and because of Title 42, this public health law, have been expelled from the country and just dropped off right at the bridge. And so they walk into this camp in the plaza, a little dazed and confused and trying to get themselves sorted. And what the people in the cocinas tell us, and what we see with our own eyes as as they're often kind of sitting congregated around the cocinas when we're there, is that they come carrying little to nothing at all. And and they have no place to sleep. They at first they have they have very little. You know they don't even have soap very often or toothbrush, toothpaste, all those things that you know we just kind of. I'm going to go to Walgreens to get that or whatever. Uh, so very 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 frequently they just have to they have to be prioritized. And these women in the cocinas are keeping an eye out. You know, so th- once you arrive, people will approach and say, you know, this is kind of how the camp set up. This is where you need to go. If you're going to be sleeping in this area, this is your cocina. This is where you get your supplies and and things that you might need. And truth be told, it's probably not a perfect system. Almost every day we're in the camp, uh, someone will walk up to us and say, oh, can I have one of these? Or, oh, what are you giving out? Or they'll follow us to our car as we're unloading some things to some members of the cocinas. And they'll say, oh, they never give us anything and that sort of thing. It's, it's probably not a perfect system, but as we talk to the people who we've developed relationships with who run these Ford Cocinas, you know, they're often saying, like, yeah, people come and ask us for things all the time, and sometimes we have to tell them no, because we know that, you know, new people come every single day, and you've asked us to prioritize the people that need it the most, and so that's what we're doing. Now, is it a perfect system? Maybe not. You know, maybe their favorite items go to their favorite people with some priority as well. There could be some layers of... of corruption, if you want to call it that. But 
they also send us evidence of when they're handing out these items. A lot of photos. We get Lots a lot of photos. of photos in our WhatsApp. Sometimes it's like 115 missed messages <laughs> in your WhatsApp. But one of the things they're doing, especially Claudia, who's who's uh, running one of the kitchens, she sends tons and tons of photos of just about everybody that receives, uh, you know, different items. So they might receive a hat and gloves or a sweatshirt because it's it's been cold recently. Soap, shampoo, all those things. There's a common uh, common element to every one of her photos, though, it seems, Louis. Isn't She's that right? prominently featured. <laughs> she is. You know how, like, on a on a smartphone now, it puts the little box around where it's going to focus? Uh-huh. It's her face is, <laughs> is in that box every time. <laughs> Members of the other cocinas usually just take pictures of the people they're giving it to. Yeah. But it's always a selfie when it's Claudia. <laughs> She's proud of it. She's proud of her work. You know, nothing she, wrong with that. Yeah. And she's great. She's been so good to us and uh, and really caring for the people who, who really need it. And she's clearly trying to communicate to the other kitchens as well. Like, these are the people I've handed things out to so that their efforts don't get reduplicated. That's right. And we, we see photos. They send us photos not only of giving out items, but sometimes they send us a photo that's taken at night as new arrivals are basically huddled up on the ground because they don't have a tent in the plaza yet and they're sleeping under you know whatever blankets maybe on a on a yoga mat or a tarp or or some kind of ground pad but but just kind of one after another lined up kind of along the uh, the walking paths of the inner workings of the plaza and so when you see a picture like that it's easy to identify the the most poor and vulnerable in a situation where there's a lot of need, but it's clear that these new arrivals just don't have, they don't even have a tent to stay in. And I think that is one thing that that isn't always clear when we're talking about a camp, that even within a camp situation like this, there's a gradation of, of need. And it's it seems crazy to have to make decisions like, like we can only give it to this person, but not this person, when everybody is sleeping outside in tents and everybody is so vulnerable. But even within that vulnerability, there's still more, there's still a spectrum of need. And, and just based on resources and, and the best way to, to care for the most people, you have to ask yourself these critical questions of, you know, how can we address the problem in a way that really helps those who are most vulnerable? And I think, you know, it is amazing what we learn in the classroom, you know, studying for to be priests, studying theology. It's like, wow, that really does carry over, like these these moral questions of how best to do this. And it's been amazing to kind of see that at play in our work. One of the easiest ways to identify a new arrival is that they'll walk in with no shoelaces on their shoes. Because migrants who attempt to cross in the U.S. get apprehended, and because of Title 42, this public health code, get expelled Basically, immediately, uh, sometimes they're held in detention for a short amount of time. But inevitably, one of the things that happens is that their belts and shoelaces are removed. We've been told that this is part of a a policy to prevent self-harm while in detention facilities. But those shoelaces, belts, etc., are not returned to the migrants. And so they walk into camp with shoes without shoelaces on them. And in the summer, you know, it's all right. We we were getting sandals at the time and trying to, like, help people, and a lot of people were barefoot. Now it's cold, you know, and people want their shoes. They want to keep their socks clean. They want to stay out of the dirt. And so you have a lot of people walking around, including children, 
without shoelaces, which is just a bizarre reality to you know have to be like, how are we going to get all these people shoelaces? Yeah, I can't even figure out exactly why it is that this is happening. Other to say, other than to say that this is uh, just a, a, an act of humiliation. You know, I mean, I. I'd like to see the studies that show, you know, that there are so many cases of, of self-harm or but there is really high risk and that the shoelaces need to be removed from the, the shoes of a young child. I mean, that to me seems a little bit absurd. Uh, and so what are we trying to do? Trying to restore a little bit of dignity to the migrants who are in the camp. It turns out getting bulk orders of shoelaces, not as easy as we would have hoped. No, not. And and so we, we were looking for like black or white and, you know, just a standard color. We couldn't find any on Amazon, which is how we're getting these donations. And then we like went to these dollar stores and tried to get a bunch, but the, you know, we sold them all out. That's, yeah, <laughs> so we would <laughs> literally take every shoelace off the rack. And, and even that, it's like $100 worth of shoelaces, yes. but those are gone in a day. Those are gone yeah. in a day. And so now we did find some on Amazon, but the their catch is that they are every color you can ever imagine. And they're <laughs> definitely marketed to like 12-year-old girls who want these bright pink <laughs> and bright green shoelaces. Yep. I mean, the there are a handful of black or white, maybe two or three that come in this 40-pack. But it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, sir. Uh, all we have to give you today is neon orange. <laughs> and it's, it is, I mean, it's its own humiliation, too. It's like you have to accept this, That's right. you know, or bright orange, bright pink yeah. shoelace. And yet it's, it's such a practical, it's just a practical decision that we had to make. Like, okay, we've got to get these shoelaces out. And, of course, they're all gone within a day. That's know, right. Because there are so many people that that need them, that get dropped off new in the camp, and the shoelaces are are needed by everyone. Yeah, there's a lot of needs that we have. We have an Amazon wish list that people have been donating to, and that's been very helpful. And some of the needs are, are more acute. You know, you think about cold, warm weather clothing as the nights get cool. But certainly one thing that is recurring and that we always seem to need are shoelaces. And it's because the migrants are coming into the camp, the new arrivals are coming in without shoelaces on. So it's it's one little way that we're trying to give back and, and help restore some dignity uh, to the migrants that we encounter there in the camp. And it's very clear that, like, these are not things that you can prepare for. Like, oh, how am I going to get everybody's shoelaces? How am I going to... And you have to ask the right people. And, you know, we have been... We have been given so many great resources that we've tried to show off on this on this podcast and so many great people to be connected with. And a huge connection that we've had is is with Sister Norma. Absolutely. Who, who really got us down here and and helped us to get situated along the valley and kind of let us free too, you know, to develop our own ministry. And she has been such a huge support of us and and we're happy to have her today on this on this podcast. We're thrilled. It's going to be great. So stay tuned for the interview with Sister Norma Pimentel. grateful to be joined today by Sister Norma Pimentel of the Missionaries of Jesus. She's the Executive Director of Catholic Charities for the Rio Grande Valley, and she's originally from Brownsville. Uh, so, Sister, thank you for, for joining us on this podcast and, 
And we really want to get started with learning a little bit about you and your work down here. But uh, could you could you first just kind of describe for us your own your own upbringing here in the Rio Grande Valley? Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to join you. Uh, I, I am from the border. I am here from the Rio Grande Valley, so del Valle. And uh, uh, this is where I grew up and I lived all my life with the exception of a couple of years that I went out to study. But for the most part, this is home, has always been home for me. I actually uh, uh, was born in Bronzeville, Texas, as you said. And my dad was uh, was uh, a very, uh, had this uh, American dream that he wanted to come to the United States and, uh, and, and uh, try his luck and hopefully uh, have something better to offer to his family, to us. And so, uh, <clears throat> this is how I ended up getting being born here in the United States, and and I grew up in Bronzeville. But we continued to go back and forth, especially on weekends. I would I would spend weekends with my grandparents, my sister and I, and 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 um, and we would come back for school over here in the states. And so that was my life, you know, growing up and and uh, a happy one. You're a member of the Missionaries of Jesus. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your vocation and how that came to be, and maybe a little bit about the work of the Missionaries of Jesus. Yes. Well, you know, uh, when I grew, when I went to college, uh, I have always, since I can remember, since first grade, my, I had this gift of drawing. My mom used to paint and draw while she, after she did the chores of the house, and and she would always take out her easel and her oil paintings, uh, uh, colors, and, and started to paint either us or something. And I was, I was always mesmerized by her and just sit there and watch her. And so since I can remember, I always uh, love art. And so uh, since I remember my first grade teacher actually um, put bushy paper in the whole wall and, and uh, had me do the nativity. And, and I did, you know, I was a first grader. And so... All my life, I knew art was part of who I, I am. And so I had this gift and I went to college and I graduated with a bachelor's of fine arts. And my goal was to continue my profession and move on in life and, and really was gung-ho on that. And so my dad had other plans for me. He just wanted me to come back home and stay home and maybe be a teacher, but uh, nothing more than that. You know, His goal was to keep his, his daughters close to home where he had an eye on us, you know, and so... Norma had other plans. I had plans to go to Austin and figure out, uh, I mean, really look at all the possibilities I had ahead of me. And so uh, as I waited and before I could get my dad upset or anything, I kept myself staying home so that he didn't interfere with my plans. I decided to go out to have, uh, because I was tired and bored of being home. And so as my friend, my dear friend, Linda, who was somebody my dad loved as well. She was a very nice church goer. And so I asked her, Linda, what are you doing tonight? And she said, um, we're going to a prayer group. And I said, oh, uh, what are you doing after the prayer group? And so <laughs> she, she says, we're going to Pizza Hut. Oh, perfect. Come pick me up. Uh, I, I would love to join you for the Pizza Hut part. You know? And so she said, no, Norma, you got to come to the prayer group because we can't go and then come back. You know, So you need to come to the prayer group. And just sit on the back. And before you know it, it's over and done with. And we'll just go out to Pizza Hut with the group. And so I did. And it was during the charismatic movement. And, and 
what happened was I was really like, wow, I can't believe what they're doing. They were all sharing their testimonies, applauding. And, you know, it was all this uh, very active kind of uh, prayer group. And so I was like, wow. At the end of the prayer group, they actually asked, they made a circle of chairs and says, anybody that needs for us to pray over you, sit at the circle. And Linda said, why don't you sit at the circle, Norma? We'll pray over you. And so all these old ladies and everybody just put their hands on top of all of us. And uh, sure enough, they prayed over me as well. And, and uh, something, something happened uh, when they prayed that my life changed totally. You know, I now can describe it almost as if scales fell off my eyes. You know, I started to see life totally different. It was it's so, it was sort of like, I was a very happy person. And yet I come to realize that I discovered a, a new kind of happiness, I guess, you know, I, I, that's what happened to me. And so I had this hunger, this desire to know God more and to um, read the Bible, pray and, and everything happened. I kept, I went back to the prayer group over and over and over again. I was with this great desire to Im immerse myself in God after that one prayer group that I attended and that they prayed over me. And so a sister invited me to a, um, a vocational retreat and that was part of the prayer group and I said sure why not you know I'm, anything and everything having to do with what I'm feeling right now I, I, I'm 100% for that and so I went and they asked me the sisters missionaries of Jesus would you consider God asking maybe asking you to be uh, uh, religious you know and I said I will definitely think about it and um uh, if it's anything of what I'm already feeling and, and where I'm at. Yes. And so um, I thought about it for a while, prayed over it and, um, and joined the religious sisters uh, not long after that. And so this is how it all started. You know, our, our theme for this, for this week and this interview is, is the preferential option for the poor in Catholic social teaching. And I'm wondering just in your own life, when did you first feel that pull? We've heard your your vocation story. We've heard, you know, how you've sort of felt this call within you, but then this call within the call to to minister specifically to to the most vulnerable among us. And so I'm wondering how you felt this this preferential call to work with the poor uh, in your own life. Yes, Bishop Ben uh, John Fitzpatrick uh, asked the sisters, our sisters, to oversee a shelter that was the diocese shelter for refugees, you know, it was Casa Oscar Romero. And so I asked to be part of that. I, I was already working for the diocese. Bishop had me working in the catechetical office. And, and initially, as soon as I entered and I started working uh, after my formation, you know, after I came back from my studies, I, I did a master's in theology as part of my formation in St. Mary's. And when I get back, um, uh, I start working uh, uh, immediately with the diocese. And so what happened was that working there at Casa Oscar Romero in the evenings, because it was after work, uh, that when I left my office, I would um, begin to see the importance of being present to the most vulnerable, the, the, those who are hurting, those who are right in front of us who need help. And, and so something happened in me that uh, I became very aware of, of the need to, to be a voice for, for the voiceless, speak up because there was so much controversy of those who were against 
uh, the immigrants or refugees, the, the illegals as they were referred to, and, and uh, defending them and speaking up for them and saying that they have a right, they have a right to be heard. And, uh, and so uh, that's where it all started for me, you know, I, 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 and especially also because the sisters, the missionaries of Jesus, they were sisters that worked with the poor, the most marginalized in our community. They're, they're, they came from Spain and they were very much interested in visiting door by door and, and understanding what the family was going through. And, and that's what I was introduced to by the sisters when I joined up, you know, is actually getting to know the people and the families in the community and be part of them and trying to help them with whatever their struggles were. And so the immigrants was just an added a group of people that were needing our help. And so the missionaries of Jesus really was the door that opened to me to see uh, the importance of myself being connected and given to those who are most struggling in my community. And of course, the immigrants are definitely um, in a very difficult situation, especially because we're here at the border and we see it daily, you know? And so Casa Romero was really, uh, uh, the first uh, place where I experienced thousands of, of families arriving in desperate conditions and in great need of just being whole and cared for and respected. And so uh, from there, of course, um, I saw the importance of, um, of moving forward in better cap being capable of, of, of providing more than just a listening ear to them, you know, but rather to truly understand the dynamics and needs of a human person. And so this is where it all started. You're the executive director of Catholic Charities in the Rio Grande Valley. One of the big projects of Catholic Charities here is the Humanitarian Respite Center, or the HRC. Could you tell us a little bit about the origin and evolution of the HRC and, and what its mission is? Yes. Well, you know, in 2014, we started to see another massive increase of immigrants coming to the border and people, families, children released to our community in great numbers, dropped off at the bus station. Border Patrol was overwhelmed with so many children that were unaccompanied and they didn't have a place to put them. And so they had to keep them in detention until they developed a, a proper response for the children, like uh, the Office of Refugee Resettlement is, are responsible to make sure that they take other company children and make sure they provide them the correct space and, and proper process. And so in the meantime, the families with, uh, with children, mom, parents with children were allowed to be released and given permission to travel so they can continue their legal proceedings at, at another point where their destination was. And so in the meantime, we found them at our community bus stations. And, and really the, the, what was happening at our downtown bus station was so uh, hard to see. And a lot of community families from the community were wanting to respond and help them, but with no organization. And so I moved in uh, uh, to try to organize a proper response for us to really be able to help these families because the bus station was kicking them out and saying, get out of here, it's chaotic. Well, we, we definitely cannot have this going on, on here. And so my initial response was to call the, the closest, the closest uh, 
parish hall was about a block and a half away from Sacred Heart that was very close to the parish hall, to the, to the bus station. So I called for the Tom and, and at the time he was there and, and I asked him, Father Tom, uh, can I borrow your parish hall for a couple of days? And so he said, yes, sister. And so all I had to do was go to the, uh, the secretary and ask for the key. And, and sure enough, I go and, and we open the doors of the Sacred Heart Parish Hall and instantly we had um, just volumes of people as far as volunteers, we start, I call a friend and I said, Esperanza, can you meet me at Parish Hall? And she asked me, what for? I said, I have no clue, Esperanza. Just meet me there, call your friends, <laughs> have them call their friends and just let's go there and figure it out together. And, and sure enough, I went to the bus station and I saw the families and I asked them, please, can you allow us to help you? Uh, can we take you somewhere where we can help you get cleaned up? get fed and bring you right back so you can get a bus and we can help you get on the bus. Basically, that's how we got started at the, at, at the Humanitarian Respite Center. And just days was mountains of donations that were sent to us like milk and pampers and food and everything. You know, it was like the response was so overwhelming and so po positive how everybody in the community just became part of this. There's a lot of unity and the Catholic response down here that's taken time to grow in understanding and to approaching the situation of immigration, not from a political lens, but from a faith lens and a human lens. And I don't know that that is extended throughout the Catholic Church in the whole country. You know, and part of it is because a lot of people haven't had an experience on the border, haven't had the personal experience or a personal visit or otherwise. Part of the goal of this podcast is to help share some stories and shed light on the Catholic response happening here on the border. So one thing I'm, I'm wondering is, you know, to the members of the faithful, to, to people who have not had experience in time on the border, what's one thing you want them to know and to hear and to, to learn uh, in light of your life and experience in ministry here? You know, and it's very true what you're saying. You know, I, I get invited to speak a lot throughout the United States. And people are amazed at the fact that this is happening at the border. They're not unaware of what is happening. The, the misinformation that is given out and, and politicized through the media, it, it has a really, uh, I always call it, it's almost as if we've been hijacked from our own true selves as to who, what we, who we are and, and, and what we're about as, as Catholics, as Christians, as people of goodwill, you know, that we don't allow ourselves to, uh, to let that inner sense of source of, of, of who we are that comes from God be the one that rules and defines who our actions. And so my, my hopes are that people who are listening uh, can take that back, can actually own their sense of, of what God is calling them to do and be. And, and that uh, being able to allow themselves to get close to uh, somebody out there that needs you, you know, that is hurting, that then really is asking for your care and your compassion, you know, and, and that for, for, I think this is who we're called as Christians, as Catholics, as people who God uh, um, defines us to be uh, connected to one another. And so therefore, um, my hopes are that um, by listening to this podcast, you can uh, 
consider the fact that God is calling you to come to the border, to come and see, to get close to that one person that meets you. And so just like you described, why you're so involved in visiting Reynosa, visiting the respite center is because there's something that happens to us when we experience the life of another human being before us that is hurting and suffering, we're truly experiencing Jesus Christ himself present there with us. And so uh, something amazing happens and we know that what we're doing is what, what God wants us to do. And in that, and then in that kind of ministry, it's hard not to be moved by the stories of each individual. You know, so often we can paint this situation in such a broad brush. You know, the way it's presented in the news or the way that we read about it in articles, things like that. And and one of the one of the central parts of ministry is actually taking the time to not just process someone, but to sit and listen to sit and engage them, to see their face, to, to learn about their life and hear their story. And so, I, you know, one question I have is, is there anyone in particular that comes to mind when you think about a story that, that you hold on to, that, that keeps you going, that, you know, keeps you inspired and, and wanting to engage this work? Is there a story that you'd like to hold up or a person that you've encountered that you'd like to, to hold up here? You know, I, uh, there's so, every single story, every single person that I have been blessed to encounter and to be present to and with has given me a part of, of God that I have um, uncovered in that encounter. And so, um, but, you know, it goes from the very initial one time that in 2014, when we and I keep remember bringing this story back up because truly that's the story that grounded me, grounded me to the fact of what it was actually happening here at the border. And that was when I visited the children at the detention facility, the kids. They were, because we knew we were seeing the families at the bus station and we were helping them. And then I said, well, you said that there's unaccompanied children and you have them in detention. I want to see them. I want to go in there. Nobody had ever been into the detention facility before. And, and so I asked the local uh, judge to give me find a way to get me in there. And so he did. And so I went inside the detention facility. It was a, a facility that is a processing facility, small, can only hold 300 people at one time. And it was very, uh, they didn't have like showers and restrooms and kitchens and all of this they it's just a processing facility that people are there just a couple of hours so they can determine who they are and they move them on to the next location whether it's a detention facility for adults or send them back or release them or whatever and and they couldn't release the children because they had the responsibility to hold on to them until they could get a proper uh, place where they could be transferred to because they were unaccompanied children, they were minors. So they kept them there in detention for not one day, not one week, several weeks, if not longer. And the kids hadn't had a chance to take a shower. They really were all packed, you know, more than almost a thousand children there. They were little ones, five, 10 years old, very, very mm -hmm. small. And they were all dirty gray of all that mud that was dried up on them. Their little faces full of tears, looking at me through the window as they were as I walked in and was looking at the whole place. I asked to go in there and, and be with them. And they 
denied my entrance and they said, no, sister, you can't go in there, you know? And, and I said, please, I want to pray with them. So of course I would say, so how can you say no to a nun that wants to pray, right? So, <laughs> you can't. <laughs> so I got myself in, but honestly, uh, it was the most difficult thing that I have ever witnessed and lived it through because walking into a cell with hundreds of children that were all there so tight that I could barely get myself to the center of where they were all around me, all looking up to me because they were tiny little kids, all with their faces full of tears, crying. And I, 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 I cried too. And they were asking, Sakamideki, get me out of here, please. Ayúdame. As I share this with you, I, I'm there. And I that experience for me was like, Norma, you have to do something. You need to make sure these children and other children in these families really are hurt because this is not right. I don't know that we should be uh, having children here in these conditions or any conditions that are inhumane, you know? And since then, and I can say, I can always share that story because it grounds me to the fact that we must do something to make sure we save humanity from that. And so um, from then, uh, there's story after story that just breaks my heart and that motivates me. Even today, I can I just came from yesterday to go to Reynosa and, and just seeing the conditions that they're in right there right now, it's just, I just say, so we, I can't just go back and not do anything. I, I There's some ladies already, pastoras that are already doing a lot. I say, here, I'm going to help you. So you can buy more tents, you can buy more food, you can buy more this and anything to help this alleviate some of the pain and suffering these families are going through. So um, all you have to do is see and every child, every mother, every person is worthy of, of of us really caring for them and wanting to do something to help them. The, those are beautiful stories and experiences that certainly connect with our, our own experiences of going over and visiting with the migrants in, in Reynosa and in the plaza there. And that, that mixture of both heartache and sorrow and also joy, you know, joy that can often undergird those encounters, which I think is why it's so important to have have encounter. You know, Pope Francis talks a lot about a theology of encounter, about how important it is to walk with one another, and that how much we learn and grow uh, from being in relationship. I'm wondering, you know, are there, is there a relationship or a, a role model or someone that's inspired you that, that, you know, especially as you were in formation or growing up or otherwise, or got started in your ministry, that that helped to inform the way that you would you would work in ministry and your life today? Oh, most definitely. Uh, Sister Juliana Garcia, a uh, Spaniard, she's, she came from Spain and she was my mentor. She actually was the one that I went through through my formation years and truly uh, amazing woman, uh, great strength and firmness and clarity as far as church and, and he, the presence of Jesus in her life and uh, she was a great model for me and, and uh, never told me what to do, but always set it up for, for me to be able to make decisions, the right decisions, you know. I remember one time, I sh I've shared this story many times, but 
we actually went to a congressman's office because uh, they were protesting what was happening in El Salvador and, and the United States involvement in that. In that, And she said, Norma, let's go support this group that are actually speaking up for the people we already know. We, are, we see the hardships that they are encountering at Casa Romero and let's go support them, you know, and we go at noon in a lunch hour. And when we get there, they, they actually, uh, the, the manager of the building was very upset and called the cops and, and came to arrest everybody. And she turns back at me and says, Norma, you know, when we say we believe in something and then we kind of like run away because things get tough, then we don't stand for anything and we're nobody. So therefore, Norma, we can't both get arrested because who's going to go take care of the families at the shelter? So you decide. <laughs> and wow. so she kind of left it like that to me, you know, and she didn't say, you're going to stay. She said, you decide. And so I said, okay. I was 25 years old, you know. I was just starting. I was just beginning to understand all of it, you know. And so I said, I guess it's me, huh? <laughs> and she said, okay, bye. <laughs> and she took, she takes out, and she just goes, you know. And so I get arrested, you know. Boy, was that an eye-opener for me, you know. It was like encountering the sense of like, oh my God, I I stand for something, you know. Mm-hmm. What does that mean, you know? And and uh, it was not an easy moment for me, but it was a moment of trans of embracing who I am, you know. One common thing in our Jesuit life uh, and history is that every story you hear, I feel like, about Jesuits, missionaries setting off to somewhere new and traversing through you know, dangerous environments and otherwise. And then the story always ends. And then they arrived and the sisters welcomed them because yeah. <laughs> it was like the sisters had been there for, uh, you know, years. And, you know, the, the, now the Jesuits finally get there, although it's a dramatic story. It, and that mir- imitates a little bit of our reality coming here. You know, it was end of 2020 when uh, the conversation started for us to arrive here and, and it took some time to develop. We got ordained priest in June of 2021 and this was our first mission. But one of the things I was so impressed was just a, a month or two after us starting the conversation of coming here, you sent out this notice to women religious in the United States, you know, come and see, come and help, you know, lend a hand. And the response was immediate. I mean, here we were developing this conversation about eh, maybe a few months from now we can make this work. And there were sisters that were here within within days, if not a week or two of your of your visit, and have continued. You know, we've been here now a few months, and we've met and worked with some of these groups of women religious who have come from all parts of the country to come and help out. So I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about that invitation and the response that you've seen since then. Oh yes, I I, I I'm amazed at the response of religious communities and religious women coming down to come and help come and be part of being present, more than anything being present. And so uh, it's amazing. I, I just came from New York. I was at uh, Long Island at a, a religious community of Sisters of St. Joseph. And um, it was amazing. It was all these young sisters and many of them, most of them in the 80s, 90s years old. A lot of them were in Zoom as well. But uh, my call, for her then was like, what else can you do? You know, I know you're doing that. I know you've had a life of doing so much, but 
what else can you do? So you should have seen the sisters, 92 years old, coming to their mother superior and saying, oh, I really need to know what I what else can I do? You know, it's like, uh, is the message landed right there and they got it and they said, we need to do more, you know, what else can we do? You know, and we're talking to sisters that are 80, 90 years old, you know, and they're ready to come down to the border and help, you know, it's amazing. It is amazing. And it's been a, it's been a pleasure of ours to just get to know them. So many of them had spent, uh, you know, years, decades in Mexico and Central America and using those skills, you know, maybe they've been retired a few years, but then you can see them come back alive, you know, playing with a child and speaking Spanish and, you know, having these conversations where they really get to know people. It's, it's very much a ministry of accompaniment. Uh, and to see them do it is, is an inspiration for us. I mean, I, I hope to still be working at 92, but I don't know that I'll have that kind of energy to <laughs> make right, it all the right. way. <laughs> I totally agree. You know, and it's, it's, it's one of the things that I've learned, especially working with immigrants and refugees, even in Casa Romero and groups of people coming down to want to help. And, I, and actually, one of the things I talked to the sisters in, 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 in Long Island was, was the fact that one of the most important things is ministry of presence, you know? Uh, accompaniment is a ministry of presence, you know? And what does that mean? And what are the obstacles that interfere with that? And so uh, uh, it's very important to be able to allow ourselves to just be present and, and uh, accompany somebody, you know, uh, without trying to uh, interfere in the process of, just because you wanna do something, you know? Yeah, I think that's very helpful. I think our American mindset often is very much driven by do, 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 and how can we, how can we be present? How can we accompany? And that becomes more of a two-way street of, of how, how are we being shaped and formed by this encounter, and how can we share uh, a part of ourselves and a part of our faith and God present among us? Uh, and that's something, that's something that I see in our relationship and being able to work with you down here, sister, of us being able to accompany one another. Uh, we very much appreciate and are inspired and motivated by the wonderful work that you do. We love the work at the HRC that we're able to bring, uh, and we love to see this relationship continue. And what a great thing for us to be able to share some of these stories and this experience and your work in ministry here through this podcast. We place ourselves at your feet. Anything you need, anytime. <laughs> well, I'm very, your presence is definitely uh, a breath of fresh air and wonderful presence that you bring a, a, such a beautiful heart and everybody loves your presence when you're there. So thank you for being part of what is happening here at the border uh, with our families. Yes, thank you, Sister Norma. Well, that's our episode for this week. We're grateful to Sister Norma Pimentel for joining us. The only sad news today is that this brings season one of the Jesuit Border podcast to a close. Say it isn't so, Brian. I'm sorry to tell all our listeners out there, but, you know, like all good things, this too must come to an end. Wow. But only for now. Yeah, you, it's season one. That's okay? right. There, there are other seasons. Yeah, it's this not is like the season. 
this is like the office. It's okay. just going to keep going until you know it gets uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> you might have picked a better example. I mean, oh, that okay. one didn't end so well. I mean, you know, last few seasons. But anyway, this podcast has been edited and produced by the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the U.S. and hosted by the Jesuit Post. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to hear more about the U.S.-Mexico border from a Catholic perspective. We'll see you in the new year on the Jesuit Order Podcast. Nos vemos!